Welcome to another episode of The CoreLink Solution, where we look to empower you with awareness and actionable insights. With a continued, and I say understandable, outcry for social justice within the United States and abroad, I've been focused here on how we bring those conversations to light, how we form more partnerships, allyship, etc. Several episodes ago, I was with Greg Hanafi, Associate Dean at the Kellogg School of Management, and we talked about how we do that with higher uh, institutions of higher education. Today, I want to broaden that to how we work with businesses and inside businesses, outside businesses, etc. And to help me in that discussion, I have Angela Talton with me. Welcome, Angela, to the Coiling Solution. James, thank you so much for having me. And also, congratulations on the Coiling Solution. This has been quite the success for you. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Let me properly uh, introduce you, Angela. Angela Talton is a senior diversity and inclusion strategist. Her experience includes leadership development, philanthropic giving, supply diversity, communication strategy, external advisory council relations, analytics, recruitment, and retention of talent. She has presented to and consulted with consumer packaged goods, HR, retail, entertainment, academic, research services, and financial management organizations regarding diversity and inclusion strategies that are data-driven and achieve measurable outcomes. Angela held diversity and inclusion roles for industry leader Nielsen as chief diversity officer and previously SVP, Global Diversity and Inclusion, where she crafted a worldwide five-pronged strategy focused on accountability, career development, talent retention, supplier diversity, and education. She solidified Nielsen's reputation as a leader in diversity and inclusion with six consecutive years of improved ranking on Diversity Inc.'s list of top 50 companies, number 16, and receiving the Human Rights Campaign's Corporate Equality Index rating of 100%. Additionally, her strategy led to Nielsen ranking as one of the top companies in DNI with disability and diversity MBA, working mother and avatar, inclusive top 50 UK employers, Fortune and Forbes. Her diversity and inclusion expertise is complemented by her experiences in senior operating executive roles. As SVP Global call center operations. She developed a strategic plan, which consolidated and streamlined work activities while delivering improved efficiencies, operating metrics, and customer satisfaction. As divisional VP inbound service for Sears Holdings, she held complete P&L general management responsibility for 3,000 associates across multiple call centers and directed the strategic operational performance of workforce planning, project management, quality channel performance, and reporting functions. So again, please join me in welcoming Angela Talton to the CoreLink Solution. Thank you so much, James. So good to have you. And, you know, I, I love going through, you know, sometimes you try to go short on the bios. I like going through the long form so people get the full breadth of the experience. And I like to say the scar tissue. <laughs> so people know what you live through, right? It's helpful. Yeah. Um, and you've got a, quite a bit of scar tissue that I, I really think will, uh, will help our audience today. Before we go into the, the tough meaty piece of the topic, I always like to ask, what's one thing that you think you can share that those who know Angela best even may not know? What's a fun fact maybe that people may not know? Well, James, I like to bake. Um, cookies and cakes, primarily. Uh-huh. Um, gingerbread has always been a favorite, be it the gingerbread cake yeah. or uh, the gingerbread cutout cookies, which nice. um, 
has not been a a good thing for me with COVID nineteen. Yeah. I've uh, certainly gained that COVID fifteen pounds. Hopefully, not to get to. Is 19. that what they're saying? It is is it COVID? Is it fifteen? Is that the yes. average? God, that's dog. that's it. Yeah, COVID-19. my my birthday was last week, and uh, oh, happy belated thank birthday! You. I went off the wagon for real. So uh, yeah, this week I'm I'm trying to get back on. I'm paying for it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, you know, you've had quite the journey through diversity and inclusion. And I would love you to step back to wherever you think is appropriate, maybe Ted Nielsen or wherever you think. And just talk about, you know, your first entree into it and maybe step through it a little bit. Okay, All right. Um, You know, James, what differentiates me a little bit when you think about my experience as a chief diversity officer would be the 18 years I served leading customer care operations Mm -hmm. at different organizations. And it gave me a wonderful opportunity to work with associates, all types of diverse associates, to create a better work environment for them. Mm -hmm. So from 300-seat operations to 3,000, it was a wonderful opportunity to see what motivates individuals, what's necessary to provide a better career path for individuals. How do we create an engaging work environment that literally motivates each person? From there, um, I moved to Nielsen. I uh, joined Nielsen in 2007 as the senior vice president responsible for their call center operations and had my first formal foray with diversity and inclusion. I was asked to co-sponsor the Black Employee Resource Group. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was blown away just um, simply by the concept of having these volunteer organizations where leaders basically step up in the in the company. They step up to engage fellow cohorts. They identify opportunities for additional learning, mm-hmm. for exposure, um, to engage with the community. And just the level of creativity, innovation, ingenuity within that Black employee resource group, I was, I was totally hooked and really wanted to engage even more with diversity and inclusion at Nielsen. Yes. So when we named our first chief diversity officer, um, she asked me to come over and put in place a strategy to further diversity and inclusion at Nielsen. And so I, uh, I felt like it was the right opportunity. I had worked with the call center for five years at that point and just really wanted to help Nielsen um, move forward. and. More importantly, to help those associates that I saw mm-hmm. have a little bit more visibility, access, and opportunity to progress their careers. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Now, you know, from Nielsen, the time you spent there, how, how, much, how much time did you spend in the call center role versus in the the uh, DNI role? So I was in the call center role for five years, and then in the diversity and inclusion role for seven years. Got it. And what? Two two questions. I think you know, moving from the call center role to the DNI role, I'm sure you probably had an initial set of expectations of what it was like. So, one would love you to expound on, mm, you know, what was so different <laughs> than what you expected, and then two, what were some of the the lessons learned? What were some of the things that went really well? Well, I would say. What I needed to learn was just the 
discipline around diversity and inclusion. And so I leveraged the opportunity to learn from some of our clients, some of our clients that were on that Diversity Inc. Top 50 list. I used that opportunity to engage and partner with human resources on a different level to learn more about how are we recruiting? Where are we recruiting from? What are some of those top universities that provide mm-hmm. talent to the organization? And what are the opportunities to make some changes there? And mm-hmm. I partnered, had a great partner in talent acquisition, and we made some significant changes around recruiting from HBCUs or um universities that had a higher population of people with disabilities and with Latinx employees as well. Um, You know, the other thing that I think I learned more about was how our Nielsen data around diverse communities was being utilized, Hmm. both inside the organization as well as outside the organization. You know, we had... um, begun some fantastic initiatives to share that Nielsen data, particularly with charitable organizations. But there was an opportunity to leverage more of that information inside the organization Mm. to make sure that our sales teams in particular saw the value of that multicultural consumer. Mm -hmm. And today, you know, it's one of the stats that Nielsen uses quite often to demonstrate the buying power of multicultural communities that stands at $4.5 trillion. And what organization wouldn't pay attention to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's so interesting, right? Because sometimes you can be, when you're on the inside, right? You have the shoemaker's children syndrome take place and you were trying to resist that clearly by doing so. So now having then gone from Nielsen, I mean, and there's so much success in the Nielsen story in this space, when you move from Nielsen and step back, if you will, and start to do work with other companies, what's your observation of what I would call some of the stops and starts, right? The things that stuck, people continue with them and they, they persisted versus the things that look like in the moment people were, you know, I think sometimes the word we use is performative, right? We, we get out there and then, but it, it loses its gas, it loses its steam, it falls to the wayside. Absolutely. So let's talk about what sticks. And I think number one, that's going to be the employee resource groups. You know, they actually evolve throughout a continuum. Genuinely, the employee resource groups or ERGs, they begin as infinity networks. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity to bring associates together. It's an opportunity to celebrate different cuisines, to Mm -hmm. um, engage with holidays, special uh, months designated for those communities, you know, that sort of thing. And then you'll see employee resource groups evolve into helping organizations with recruitment and retention and even more education opportunities. Um, At the end of the day, Nielsen's ERGs had evolved to what we call business resource groups, and several organizations use different names. Mm -hmm. But to me, when an organization becomes more of a business resource group, you're leveraging that talent. You're leveraging that talent with your consumers. You are leveraging that talent with your clients in a B2B world, and you are really having them engage and have a voice at the table, not just sitting at the table, but having a voice and sharing what they know that differentiates their community, their preferences, product options, 
we are really using that ERG to learn more about a very, very important consumer within the ecosystem. Yeah. I heard that, you know, it's so funny because I've been in the DNI space. Well, not like you. So I'm not, a, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> be clear on this podcast. I don't proclaim to be a DNI professional. I've been on councils for a long time. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and have sponsored a number of, uh, ERGs and, but this, I love the distinction you made that was so clear. And I think this is one to highlight and I want people to really get it. The call out you made in terms of ERGs and BRGs, I'm going to play it back and, and you clean me up, but here's my takeaway. ERGs okay. can be seen sometimes as a, as a place for people to speak to their grievances have affinity, feel comfortable, trust zone, sit here, stay here, and for lack of better terms, even be pacified a little bit. Yes. BRGs, intentional usage, understand, you know, the markets, you know, double down on the phrase, uh, we want to look like the areas in which we do business and how do we make that true? Right. Uh, we, we have a certain population here. How do we have lending practices that work that way here? BRG, help us do that. Right. Like that would be the true living out of, you know, that relationship between BRD and the leadership team, executive team, et cetera. Does, is that what you were really speaking to? That is a perfect description. At the end of the day, companies really should leverage their ERGs, BRGs for that purpose. It's what's missing in the market. Where's that opportunity? Where am I missing as a leader, my understanding of the needs of this community, Mm. both inside the organization as well as outside the organization? And I guess more importantly, from a career development perspective, leaders really should look to their ERGs and BRGs for talent. You know, these individuals are volunteering for additional work Mm. in addition to their day job. They are creative, innovative. They're motivating individuals. They are fantastic project managers. They are learning how to manage a budget. This is the go-to group at the end of the day uh, for the organization. And so, you know, my, my call out to leaders would be, you know, when you're looking for top talent, you needn't look any further than your own backyard right because there. there's a ton of talent there. Mm, they're right there. And, you know, one of the things I would ask is, you know, in your observations, are BRGs properly tapped into or underutilized? Um, you know, James, it's certainly going to depend on the organization, but I'd say generally underutilized generally underutilized generally underutilized and and I'll use that to segue to your second part of the question you know you asked about starts and stops yes. and I, I i think brgs provide a great example of this you know that start and stops going to be diverse representation within the organization yes i i believe that companies see this as an opportunity and, you know, let's say we're moving forward, we're taking, you know, steps forward. But at the end of the day, um, we find ourselves where we are in 2020, mm. right? Mm. Several companies have sort of taken a step back and uh, we're unfortunately moving backwards on that curve. You just take a look at the number of black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Ten years ago, there were seven. 
seven, yeah. 1.4%. Um, today, there are three. You know, as you know, we just lost we just one. lost one. Yeah. All three are males. When you look at that from a female perspective, uh, female CEOs have increased of late. They're 37. Um, of the 37, however, only three are of color. Right. And all three are Asian. So there are no black females and there are no Latinas as CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Right. And, you know, again, thinking of it as 2020, that's uh, that's pretty sad. It is. And, you know, I'll just, you know, we're, we're going <laughs> into a rabbit hole, maybe. But I just want to share this in terms of people who are listening, thinking, well, you know, how do I crack this code? I'll share a personal story. At one point, two, two, two short stories, hopefully two vignettes, let's call it. I remember going through a conversation with an executive who wanted to maybe, you know, expand their leadership team and thinking about filling the seat. And we were having this conversation and they said to me, you know, it's, it's really difficult. It's really hard. It's really hard. And I said, well, you know, I gotta be honest with you. You know, we, we just acquired another company. And when we acquired the company, you announced that, you know, we rebrand all this stuff within like 90 days. I mean, like that is hard. Okay. Rebranding, you know, tons of storefronts. Talking about filling this seat, I mean, you've got myself and a number of us who have nice Rolodexes. And if you tell us what you're looking for, we can help get it right. And that conversation just went much longer than it probably needed to and did not get to the place it needed to. That's that's vignette number one. Vignette number two is something I've seen happen over and over and over again in talent reviews and language use. And here's the language use. I've seen happen and I, I hate to overgeneralize, but I'm just speaking from personal experience thematically mm -hmm. when there's a person in the BRG, like you just said, and we should grab that talent. They, the, the question becomes, should we take the risk when the person doesn't have the full skill set? when it's non uh, minority talent, right? It should we make the investment? Mm -hmm. That's very different language. Yes. Should we take the risk or should we make the investment? And I just ask leaders to think about the language you're using in those talent conversations, right? Risk versus yes. investment based on the person. Yes. Yeah. And at the end of the day, to even call it a risk, um, you know, it's a calculated risk. And um, I would argue the benefit of an internal associate is that they know the organization. Right. They know the players. They've taken the time to engage with associates. They've taken the time to learn the business. Um, they are loyal to the business. In the case of ERGs, they're dedicated. Right. They persevere. They're actually helping to communicate quite a few messages within the organization. Absolutely. And so you know, that's a calculated risk that I take every single day. All day. Um, to your point around language, we have to get to the point of understanding that potential has no um, has no color. That's right. That's it, right. It's all about intellect, desire, that loyalty, and just, you know, what's inside us to win. And I, I believe that anyone, when given the opportunity, with some mentoring and sponsorship, which is what happens throughout an organization, um, anyone can rise to the occasion. And quite often, they will rise faster by knowing that they have a leader in their corner. Absolutely. By knowing that here's my sponsor 
and they believe in me and they think I can do this. So I'll take that stretch assignment every single day. Absolutely. I, I can't say enough about uh, what you just said in terms of mentoring, sponsorship, uh, et cetera. And to, the, you know, kind of leading from that point, the investment, every investment has a level of risk. And to the extent that you know how you can mitigate that risk and plan for it, that's what we do as leaders, right? And so you you have a couple points of mitigation. One, you should know that the rest of the BRG is going to be behind that person and doing everything they can to block and get in front of and help that person succeed. Why? Because it's a win for everyone, right? Secondarily, the right sponsors. I mean, when I think about my career and folks that helped me – Kim Davis, I call Kim Aunt Kim. Kim's now at the uh, at, at, at the uh, hockey league, but at J.P. Morgan Chase, Kim was the president of the foundation, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation, and was prior to that the senior VP of uh, HR for all of Latin America. The tutelage that she gave me at different points as a sponsor, right? Claude Weir was the head of HR for the investment bank and prior to that for employee relations. You know, uh, Ed McGann was the head of compensation uh, who helped me out a lot. You, You need people who help get in front of you and raise your antennas to things that you just don't hear yet, right? (laughs) And act as a sponsor in our tables, quite frankly, you are not at yet to, to speak on your behalf. Yes. Again, James, that's why I I use that phrase about um, as a foundation, we should look to provide employees with visibility, access and opportunity. Visibility. I see you and I see your potential. Yes. Access, access to information, access to a network, access to other members of the leadership team and therefore opportunity, you know, that investment Mm -hmm. in you and providing you with that opportunity to show the rest of the organization what that sponsor truly believes you can do. Absolutely. So clear. Well, you know, you, you, congratulating me on my company and what I'm doing. I want to congratulate you on yours, excited to uh, what you're doing with your company and, and so on and so forth. And one of the things I picked up with your company is you're focused on helping clients commit to the work. And so I'd love you to just elaborate on that a bit. What do you, how do you define commit? I think um, a committed company is a company who's willing to put in the work and wants to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And with my company, what I try to do with clients is let's sit down and understand what is that? What is it that you want? What's your aspirational goal? Mm. And then to work backwards from there to create a vision or a roadmap. Using that roadmap, I began to put in place different initiatives and programs that will ultimately allow that organization to reach that aspirational goal. But it all starts with that first conversation around commitment. It's an understanding of what do you really want your organization to be? Is this just around um, increasing your representation? Or is this going beyond that and creating a legacy, putting in place some new innovation for your organization to make a name for itself around diversity and inclusion, to really show that level of commitment? Um, Wherever the organization is along that spectrum, it is critically important to understand it's a team effort. Um, This is not the work of simply a diversity and inclusion team 
go off and make us more diverse right. and inclusive. Right. This is a full contact sport. Yeah. This is engaging every leader within the organization and understanding that critical component of communication to furthering the goal. Yeah. And what's been the secret sauce to getting people to the extent you can share it. I don't want you to share anything proprietary or et cetera, <laughs> but what's the secret sauce to getting people to commit? What I'd say, James, is meeting people where they are. Okay. And in today's environment, that's a little tough. Okay. Right. It's, um, it, it, it's a little hard uh, to think of 2020 being a time where we're still talking about business cases for diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. But if that's what it takes to meet you where you are. Yeah. yeah. Again, there are numbers regarding diversity and inclusion and numbers don't lie. Yeah. You know, you think about the McKinsey report from yeah. 2014 and again, um, reanalyzed in 2017 with a more global focus around companies. You know, at the end of the day, you see that organizations who have a diverse workforce that's not just diverse in numbers, but are actually included in decisions, they're included in representation around the leadership of the organization. Mm -hmm. Those organizations have 35% better financial results. And um, when you're thinking about racial, ethnic, diversity and 15% better results when you're thinking about gender diversity. And so sharing with organizations that type of information um, in the B2B world, what really works is showing what other organizations are doing, being your clients or your competitors. Yes. Here's what other organizations are doing. And yes. it's about time that you step up to the plate. I, I think you first have to set the stage around meeting people where they are, and Mm -hmm. generally numbers are helpful for that. Mm -hmm. Now that you have their attention, it's time to move towards those eye-opening experiences. That's where you are demonstrating that the cost of turnover is truly in the millions of dollars. Millions. So the work that your ERGs and BRGs are doing is really going directly to your bottom line. So Who are those talented individuals that we haven't tapped yet that we need to pay attention to that are helping drive those sort of numbers uh, to improve your EBITDA? I I think at the end of the day, it's really starting with meeting them where they are, Mm -hmm. wherever that might be. Again, generally it's numbers and then moving to those eye opening experiences. What can we do around career development? What can we do around recruitment and retention? What can we do around engaging the community mm, as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, because that's either where your customers are coming from or the consumers for your clients are coming from. So what are those opportunities as well? Yeah, no, that's good. Very good insight. You know, I almost struggle to answer this question, um, ask this question rather. You shared some of the data around the business case, right? Which has been, that data hasn't changed a lot probably over the last decade, right? right. I mean, if anything, it's it's gotten strengthened, right? And more compelling. Yes. And yes. the syndication of it, I'm not sure has broadened, right? Most people have seen the data. And so it's not that the data hasn't been strong enough. It's not that people haven't been aware of the data. So the question I guess I would have is, we've got a lot of energy happening right now 
both on U.S. soil and abroad. What do you think can be done in this moment to drive meaningful and sustainable change? Um, well, James, as, uh, as you know, when you and I, you know, did a prep call about this, um, we do have great momentum right now. Um, we have the mic. Right. And so it is very, very important that we are clear regarding what it is that we want. Yeah. I, I think it's time for us to really create an agenda and share that agenda broadly around what is needed to make sustainable change around Black Lives Matter. Let's let's stop just using it as a tagline mm-hmm. and let's move forward with sustainable change. And for me, this is just, you know, uh, my thoughts. I think it has to start with criminal justice reform, because at the end of the day, People are literally being killed. Mm -hmm. Families are being broken apart. I I think um, we have seen legislation come from both parties, and it is time for those parties to come together to negotiate, to decide on what we can move forward with in terms of taking that bill and turning it into a law prior to November 3rd. Um, You know, it's just like, you know, you think about a football game, right? You're trying to put numbers on the scoreboard. Um, Sure, you want a touchdown, right? You want the seven points, but you know what? I'd be happy with three. Mm -hmm. I I think at this point to think that we would get 100% of what's in the um, bill today, um, that's a little lofty. Love to get it. I'm not sure that that's going to happen, yeah. but I'd be happy to move that ball forward, forward. and let's get half of it. Let's yeah. get two thirds of it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Congress needs to act, and they need to act, in my opinion, before November third. Mm-hmm. That would be number one. Number two and three, I would say it's education and healthcare. Yeah, I, I still believe that education is one of those keys to economic freedom. And I, I think it was Governor Cuomo who speaks quite eloquently about how COVID-19 has really unearthed so many aspects of systemic racism that this country has been um, involved with, yes. you know, over mm-hmm. the past hundreds of years. I, I believe just looking at the dollars allocated to the different school systems and how that varies significantly, that needs to stop. Yes. And um, we can make that change. The healthcare disparity is just uh, unbelievable. And then last, uh, but certainly not least, would be the economic reform. To think that minimum wage is $7.25 and has been $7.25 since 2009. So for 11 years, there's been no change. Um, I uh, was talking to my financial advisor uh, last week, and I I made the point of... uh, that being minimum wage. And he was like, no way. That's not the number. <laughs> I was like, I promise you, it's yeah. $7 and 25 cents. And, you know, it's sad that so many people don't know that. Right. But when today we have Congress debating why people shouldn't receive $600 a week, which, oh, by the way, is not that much more. Um, 
you know, it's pretty sad. It is. It is. You know, the, the, I don't know about you. I go through a range of emotions constantly throughout the day, right? Find myself floating through different emotions. And the one is the disbelief from a humanity perspective that any, that, that you could tolerate that somebody couldn't survive, right? That you could, you know, it's it's just, but you know, and it's the same thing when you, uh, if, if you drive past a tent city that you could, that you could stomach that, folks are living in a tent city outside in the rain in the elements, et cetera. Right. And uh, how do we, you know, how do we move? But working 40 hours a week, yeah, right? right. You're right. working 40 hours a week and you're still at poverty level, yes. below poverty, below level. poverty level. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unconscionable. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, all the points you mentioned, I agree with uh, criminal justice reform, education, healthcare, economic reform on my list is, is uh, the same along with the voting piece. Yeah. It concerns me a lot, right? The, the whole issue of voter suppression uh, and what needs to happen there and uh, housing, which I think housing would fall under economic reform. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's a, it's, there are a lot of pots, you know, when you back to the business case piece, same thing. I, I think the numbers were, you know, out of fortune 500, right. To 0.8% CEOs, yes. right. 0.8. And now I guess that dropped because I think the point eight included the, the one we just lost. So, uh, yeah, there you go. And and then professional level. And I think professionals include directs to the CEO, maybe one level below three point eight percent, I think, was the last number I saw. Right. So grossly underrepresented. What do you think has to happen inside of the Fortune five to see change there? Well, James, I think um, I think that's where that commitment comes in. Um, you know, think about the change that we saw regarding equality for LGBTQ for that community, mm-hmm. and you think about how many companies mm. became engaged in the dialogue to get to the marriage. Equality Act of 2018. Mm -hmm. You know, think about how many companies have begun to engage around um, around this COVID issue of students um, not being able to uh, stay in the U.S. if they were working uh, online, and how quickly companies came to the forefront and the White House changed their tune. Companies can step forward and make sure that their opinions are heard around this. Yes. And I think it's uh, it's time to do that. It's time to do that around this systemic racism. And I believe they will be heard. But again, we need to have that specific agenda, the clear expectations of what we want these companies to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, James, companies have stepped forward po- post the uh, George Floyd murder, and they've made uh, some significant contributions to um, the NAACP, ACLU, Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's been, you know, that's been good. I, uh, I, however, believe that you give a man a fish, man or woman, he eats for a day. That's right. You teach a man or woman to fish, they'll eat forever. and. Um, I, I really applaud those organizations that 
directed their funds to HBCUs mm-hmm. because there you're 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 narrowing your focus. You're you're really identifying, you know, in a couple of those areas that we talked about, right? The educational reform, the mm-hmm. uh, economic reform. There's better opportunities there. But I'd ask those organizations to think about moving the needle even further. Mm. Again, back to if I teach you to fish. So instead of just writing a check, how about giving time, giving knowledge, giving expertise, giving that sponsorship, that mentorship? How about setting up an internship Mm. at the Mm -hmm. HBCUs so that instead of just giving money, I am providing education. I am helping you to understand what's needed to enter the corporate world post your graduation. And oh, by the way, how about giving jobs to those interns within your organization? So, you know, I, I would I would ask companies to really think about how could you invest those dollars and maybe look inside your organization and identify a win-win? How about looking at those hourly employees, um, some of which may be making that $7.25 an mm-hmm. hour? And what are your opportunities to move that needle towards the living wage? Right. And maybe you can't see fit to move that immediately, but put a plan in place, hold yourselves accountable to moving the needle to increasing that hourly rate over a course of years to get to a living wage. I, I feel as though um, the contributions are are nice, but that didn't require a whole lot of action. Mm-hmm. And I think to make a change in this country around systemic racism, it's going to take um, action. Yeah. No, it's good. Action inside those organizations. Well said. Well said. It's going to take that commitment. You know, and I think you outlined a couple actions, right? I mean, all the way from when we first started talking about the BRGs and getting more involved internally, just what you said there, get more involved externally. And I think, you know, one of the most important words, I shouldn't say most important words, but probably one of the most used words I've heard over the last four months is allyship. And I think we're getting more and more uh, allies to step up. I think we've seen more and more uh, new uh, chief DEI officers go into place. And I think those who've been in the roles for a long time or are new to the roles, their commitment's not new. Right. I think if anything, they're probably, you know, I don't want to I don't want to say burned out. I don't want to speak for anyone. I'm sure they're tired. I'm sure they feel a little bit oversubscribed, but at the same time, feel a commitment to get this done. But also want to reach out to folks, right, to folks who are new to this work and want to do it, but then feel like, wow, I'm not sure at the next level above me, people are going for this. What's what's your counsel to those folks? Um, I, I think. I think if it's meant to be, um, it starts with me. Mm. So I would, I would encourage them to take the role. I would encourage them to take the role. However, by making it clear that I am an influencer to the rest of the organization, 
although there is a diversity and inclusion team, and oh, by the way, you should have a team right. <laughs> when you're saying yes to this role, you, your team will help and influence and encourage and provide information, but the work has to be at the level of the business unit leaders. Yes. It's at the level of those departments mm-hmm. who are directly responsible for a group of employees. Yes. So making a clear distinction between who's really moving the needle on this work. You know, you can have all the great ideas in the world, but without that collaboration and partnership mm-hmm. by the business unit leaders, collaboration, partnership, and oh, by the way, ownership by those groups, that needle will not move. And so making that clear distinction around the influencing role of a um, diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging leader, Mm -hmm. I think that's very, very important. I I think, um, you know, one one of the reasons that the work at Nielsen was such a success was uh, what I like to call that encouraging leaders to lead. Mm -hmm. And um, I often would highlight who those leaders were because they were doing yeoman's work around diversity and inclusion within their team, but also within their sphere of influence. And therefore, you know, their peers and partners were seeing, oh my goodness, you know, look at how important this is to X individual Mm -hmm. that they are going beyond just working within their department. You know, these are the coaches and the sponsors and the mentors. These are the executive sponsors of the DRGs and the ERGs. These are the leaders who are committed to leadership development and maybe even writing some big checks to provide that additional career development opportunity for employees and, you know, coming up with great ideas to provide that visibility and access and opportunity, maybe with innovative challenges and really allowing Mm. our associates to share their ideas that might not be heard any other way. So I, I, I definitely think people should say yes to the opportunity, but with some caveats right. and making it crystal clear that, uh, you know, again, it's a team sport yeah. and everyone needs to participate. No, that's beautiful. I, I love that. And, and, and it's so clear in terms of, again, that, that reinforced commitment in a number of different ways. A number of different ways. So with that, I'd, I'd love to try to wrap up and jump in, uh, Angela. I'm going to try to recap some of the points that you outlined um, from early on in your career and bringing those forward. Um, one about, you know, the committed companies and being committed to the work. And I love your early story again on this um, demarc- line of demarcation between the ERGs and the BRGs and really engaging BRGs as a business resource group use them to solve your business problems, both externally to understand your market, internally to use as a source of talent uh, and be intentional about that. Um, two, that the committed companies uh, see, use cultural transformation. And you said that they have skin in the game. I don't know if that's the word you use, but all hands on deck. It's a team sport is the word yes. you use, right? Yes. So you can't outsource. <laughs> you can't just outsource, hire someone and outsource becoming good at diversity and inclusion. Right. That accountability piece, James, it's so incredibly important. And 
the leaders have to understand they are accountable for moving the needle. And oh, by the way, at the senior most level of the organization, they have to maintain that level of accountability with those leaders. Diversity and inclusion should be viewed the same way as other organizational goals. You set a target, you're tracking and trending and measuring to see continuous improvement towards that target. That's the same way you look at your financial goals. You should look at your diversity and inclusion goals. Absolutely. And then the third one, this piece around, you know, these, these folks, just like we talked about, if you're going to grab talent, then they need the visibility. They need access. And one of the words we talked about, I mean, capital S, they need sponsorship. Yes, absolutely. And And there are so many leaders. I think if you share with them how important it is to individuals to actually hear that you believe in them to actually Mm. be willing to provide them with that opportunity. I have yet to see someone who doesn't stand up and um, actually exceed your expectations. I'll tell you, James, that's probably the Mm. single Mm. most Mm. rewarding part of my career was actually helping individuals progress and move up the ladder. I, um, have never seen anyone who you tell them you believe in them and you think that they can actually take on that stretch opportunity or take on that new role. I've never seen them disappoint me. No, that's good. That's good. And then last but not least, and you know, I'm not sure if this is, this is your fourth point or, or not, but one of the things about taking advantage of this moment is the clarity of the ask, right? Yeah. Uh, I just felt like that was such a poignant point is uh, being being clear on what you're going to do, which which kind of map back to the first thing you said about being committed as a company. Right. So what what are your goals? And then I think you said then you step through. OK, if that's your goals, let's reverse engineer the roadmap to get to right. your goals. So be clear about the goals. Be accountable right. to the goals. Let's reverse engineer the roadmap. And now let's get to work. And by the way, it's a team sport. You don't get to outsource it. We're going to go through this thing together. That's it. Sounds that so simple, exactly doesn't it? it. <laughs> it's how we solve most <laughs> business problems. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All done. All now, done. Now All let's done. just make it happen. Let's just make it happen. It's so good to have you. So good to see you again. And uh, thank, thank you for you. spending your time. I know you've got tons of clients you're working with right now, but I really appreciate you bringing your expertise to the, to the CoreLink Solution. Thank you so much, James. And again, I am really proud of what you're doing with this platform. So keep up the great work. Thank you so much. And Coiling Solution audience, there you have it again from uh, Angela Talton. Her uh, reputation speaks for itself. And uh, as always, I invite you to uh, not only listen, but comment. Whatever platform you're listening on or watching on, throw your comments in the comment section. We'll try to respond and uh, share your thoughts as you begin to execute things. Please share what you're doing. And as always, if you need any more information, you can email me at James or so at thecoolingsolution.com. You know I'm going to say it to you. Be informed, be empowered, be accountable. See you next time.